Today, 25% of the legislators uh, in the Indian National Parliament are people accused of serious crimes like rape, murder, extortion, kidnapping, and so on. One quarter of the legislators are, 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 are of that category. In some state governments like in Bihar, it's 50% of the legislators. So the nexus between crime and politics has grown. And the reason I, I'm pessimistic is that this is a bad equilibrium. In other words, it is in no one's interest to change this. The efforts to reduce corruption, to reduce the criminality in politics have been going on for the last 30, 40 years. But no one is willing to do it. Why would I do it if I, if I think that you will not do it? And so the bad equilibrium continues. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron. Thanks, Niels, and um, welcome, everyone. So, India, it's the world's largest country. It's four times the size of the U.S., one out of every five people under the age of 25 in the world live in India. Uh, McKinsey says it's already the Indian century. Morgan Stanley is very bullish on the stock market and the economy. Um, and I think a lot of people in the West look at the increasingly uh, confrontational relationship between China and the U.S. and kind of look to India as potentially the buffer, as the world's so-called largest democracy. Um, but our guest today has a different perspective. Um, Ashok Modi is a visiting professor of international economic policy at Princeton. He worked for many years at both the IMF and the World Bank. And he's the author of a new book called India is Broken, which, as you can tell from the title, uh, means he's got a much more somber view of India's current state and its future prospects. So, Today is a show for anyone who wants to spend a little time, go beneath the headlines, go beneath the hype, and try to understand the world's largest country 
um, a bit better. So with that uh, rather long um, introduction, Ashok Modi, thanks so much for joining us and uh, welcome to the show today. Uh, thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you for having me. So um, I, I know that you you were born in India, raised in India, um, you did your undergraduate and I think also a graduate degree in India. W- would you mind just giving us a little personal history um, about your, your time in India and then how you came to the United States, and then perhaps we could then jump ahead and just hear about what motivated you to write this particular book now. Okay, thank you. So um, my father worked for the Reserve Bank of India, which is the central bank. So growing up, lived in different cities, Calcutta, Delhi, Bombay, Chennai, or what used to be called Madras then. Yeah, just a, you know, a public servant, my uh, very typical child of a public servant, very heavy um, emphasis uh, on education uh, at that level of uh, society and uh, went to a very well-known engineering college in in Chennai uh, called the Indian Institute of Technology. And then uh, went to a center, a small center in Trivandrum, which specializes in economic development. Although I graduated in electronic engineering, my heart was always in economic development. And so I transitioned the day I finished engineering. And then eventually I came to Boston University to do a PhD. And from there, then sort of life just took its own course, went to Bell Labs, World Bank, and then, as you say, IMF, and now Princeton. I'm a serial retirer. I've retired early from the World Bank, early from the IMF, and now I'm <laughs> That's a very good strategy, actually. Um, so when you you know retired for this uh, most recent time, is, is that when you started working on the book? So I, I did an earlier book. So when at, in the IMF, I was... Um, uh, working on Europe. And in some ways, the high point of my professional life was doing the bailout uh, of Ireland in the midst of the global financial crisis. That was, I believe, in 2010. And then I stuck around for another couple of years. I was the man responsible for Germany uh, at the IMF. So when I came to Princeton, in 2012, I did a book uh, on Europe, on the Euro specifically, uh, called uh, Euro Tragedy, which, in, which took me six years to write. In fact, uh, you know, we were just talking about Barry Eichengreen, and early on I asked Barry, I said, Barry, how long does it take to write a book? And he said, twice as long as you think it will. And indeed, it took me three times as long. So it took six years to write that book. And then the last four years, I've been working on the India book. And um, what motivated you, you know, given that your, um, you know, your professional career, at least at the the the, um, the part of it um, toward the end, was was focused on on Europe? What motivated you to kind of pivot and write about your home country? So, uh, so yeah, as I say in the preface to the book, uh, in, I think, 2018, I became a U.S. citizen. Finally, after being in the United States for uh, 17, uh, 
almost 35 years. And when I did so, there was an emotion, sense of emotional range. So I called my father and I said, you know, I'm feeling, I'm, I'm not feeling sort of very good about the fact that I have had to give up my Indian citizenship because India does not allow dual citizenship. And he promptly reassured me, you will always be an Indian at heart. And that Indian at heart has been speaking for a long time to me. As you said, Kevin, in your introductory remarks, there's been a narrative about India which has been prevalent at least, I would say, since the early 90s. That India is this country which is on the go. It is a competitor of China. People often used India-China in the same breath uh, for a long time. Then China raced ahead. And then there was this notion that India will become a counterweight to China. And having seen the lived reality, although I, I belong to the part of India which, you know, lives pretty much first world lives, even in India, you see the lived reality and it doesn't, the, the, the narrative that the Indian authorities and the Western elite tell about India doesn't, didn't just pass the smell test for me. And I, I had this urge to say, you know, why don't I tell the story as I have seen it? And I felt in so doing that telling a contemporary story was not enough because the history was important. History was important in the sense that once we started down a certain path, the choices increasingly became limited. And that's why a history. Yeah, and that definitely... That, that that exact point really comes through clearly in the book as you talk about the initial choices of economic development model after independence and then what followed on from that. You really do get the sense of, of kind of path dependence and development. Um, you, you say, um, actually say toward the end of the book that when India became independent in 1947, it had three, faced three challenges. Um, to basically increase agricultural productivity, make farmers more productive, um, create good jobs in the cities for a growing population, and to compete internationally. And to, to meet those challenges, it, it relies on what you called an improbable democracy, essentially relying on the wisdom of poor and, and largely illiterate citizens. And then you kind of conclude by saying, hey, you know, 75 years later, those three challenges are still unmet. And not only that, the democracy is maybe no longer a democracy. Some people have said it's basically India is now an elected autocracy and, and press freedom has been eroded. There's increasing violence. So that's a yeah, quite a different story than, than, the, than what we often hear in the Western press. So I, I wondered if perhaps we could start by talking about the path that India did not take. Because that, that, to me, sort of serves as sort of like a reference point in your book. You, you're referring back to it a lot. And um, so there's basically a, a development model that was followed 
by Japan and then Korea, Taiwan, even China and Vietnam, all, all um, to, in slightly different ways. But could you lay out for us that kind of development path that led those other East Asian countries to, you know, kind of to meet their development challenges? And then we can talk about the path that India did, did choose to take. Very good. Uh, so all of these countries started with the vast bulk of the workforce in agriculture. Japan, by one estimate, at the time of the Meiji Revolution, had about 80% of its workforce in agriculture. India, at the time of independence, had about 70% of the workforce in agriculture. And it's a standard statement in development economics that development is essentially transferring people out of a low what is a low productivity agriculture into higher productivity urban jobs. That's the essence of development. And Japan did it relatively quickly in the sense that by the 1920s, pretty much everybody who wanted an urban job could get one. And then Korea and Taiwan and China did it much faster than Japan did. So Japan took almost about 50 years to do it. Uh, Korea and Taiwan did, uh, and China took even less time to do it. And that requires this, this dual effort, raise productivity in agriculture so that you need fewer people to work in agriculture and create jobs to which people can then come, those who have been freed from agricultural jobs. And in the Indian context, we never really got around to doing that. Especially in the first 17 years under Jawaharlal Nehru, the share of agriculture remained essentially the same for 17 years. And then it, it inevitably did decline because the distress in agriculture keeps increasing. Remember, Indian farms tend to get subdivided by generation. Farms become smaller. And so the ability to make a living in agriculture de declines. And then in, in addition, if you don't have urban jobs, you have this tension that you want to get out, but you're not quite sure where to go. And so there is, there is the migrant, but the migration was limited for a very long time. And in, in the kind of the East Asian model, it seems like the way to create those um, urban jobs to absorb the people who are leaving agriculture is through is through manufacturing and through ma you know starting off with kind of I guess low value added and then working your way up the chain and in order to to do that um, again I, I'm really just kind of repeating but what's in the book you're saying hey we need you really need to focus on universal primary education because that workforce an educated workforce is a more productive workforce you need to have women educated and to have them into the um the workforce and um you need to be willing to allow your exchange rate to to weaken to make your products more competitive so um those were choices that you know you said india never never made correct so india did not make those choices for this for the first 35 years after independence uh, the, for some reasons that 
I have still not understood except in sort of a very broad cultural sense. There is a sense of humiliation if the currency is devalued. But as, as you rightly point out, and as I repeat many times in my book, every East Asian country used aggressive devaluation to create demand for their goods. So the pattern was identical. A, a relatively cheap currency, highly educated workforce, highly in the sense that primary and secondary, highly educated for the labor-intensive products that they were producing, and women in the workforce. Just to step on, to step back on these two points, uh, Odin Galore has a new book uh, called "The Journey of Humanity," and he we, says we, um, we had him on the uh, on the show actually in the fall. Yeah, to talk look, about I mean, he, he says right off the bat in in, in his opening uh, few pages that every country that has industrialized has educated its kids and has brought women into the workforce. No country has achieved gender parity, but has made an effort to achieve gender parity. And the East Asians did that in their own way. They put a huge emphasis on primary and then secondary and eventually tertiary education. And they brought women into the workforce. Again, gender disparity remained, but it became less over time, or at least it was it, it overcame some of the traditional barriers. So that's on the on the supply side, if you will. And on the demand side, you want to create demand through a currency that is relatively cheap. And all of these countries initially produced relatively shoddy goods. I remember the first time I went to Korea uh, in one of the uh, uh, you know bazaars there. I saw a New Balance shoe, which at that time in 1984, it was a very desirable thing to have. I wanted for five or ten dollars. So when I came back to America, everyone was very, very excited. You got New Balance shoes, and so. So they produce relatively uh, shoddy quality stuff. But what the lesson I learned through writing this book is that the world has some appetite for cheap, low quality products for a while. And all these countries then learn. That's the key part. That as they become part of the global markets, that their buyers demand higher quality. And that demand for higher quality forces them to upgrade. Again, on the same visit to Korea, they were producing resistors. Today, pe most, most people don't even know what a resistor is because it comes embedded in, in uh, computer chips. The televisions being assembled on Samsung's floors had Hitachi and Toshiba boxes around them. Today, no one knows about Hitachi and Toshiba and Samsung is a world leader. So there is... There is this tremendous infusion of knowledge that occurs slowly at the start, and then it picks up. And that, that's the process of development that all these East Asian countries went through. And so India really, for the most part, did not go down that path. And they, the, the path they did take was one that you called kind of building temples. So instead of focusing on you know, mass um, education and mass producing and manufacturing, 
Prime Minister Nehru, who, who led the country after independence, he focused instead on heavy industry, big projects, developing a few elite universities. And, you know, what what's the outcome of that model? Because that's kind of, as we talked about at the beginning, that, that India's history is path dependent. And that was kind of the first few steps on the path. What 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 are the the economics problem with with kind of building temples for India? So there were three problems. Problem one was that the skill base, such as India developed, was tuned much more to heavy industry, and some very uh, heartwarming stuff. You know, the aerospace industry, the locomotive industry, and fertilizers. But these were not job creating. And so essentially over the Nehruvian period, the number of people seeking jobs kept increasing. So first is the skill base. Now associated with that, the emphasis right from the start was on tertiary education. So as you pointed out, or maybe I said so, I'm the beneficiary of the Nehruvian policies. I went to an IIT, which is considered very elite. But the phrase I think I use in the book is how many Indian geniuses left, were left undiscovered. Uh, the, the vast majority of people did not go to primary school for a very long time. Only in recent years, the primary school education, uh, there is there is 100% enrollment at, at the primary level sometime in the 90s. But the, the neglect of the primary schools, and again, this is the history, the neglect of primary schools has also le left a legacy of poor teaching quality, corruption in the, uh, in, the, in the school system. The result is that kids who are in fifth grade struggle to do second grade level uh, tasks. And then as they go to eighth grade, that becomes even harder. They're, they're, they're the gap in between their requirements and their standards and their abilities widens. Something like 30% of the kids drop out by the time they reach uh, high school. And those who do go through then go to a slew of high, uh, of tertiary education colleges, which are run by politicians and notables uh, almost as a racket. So this is, this, you know, this is the odd thing. There is a small group of Indians who get excellent education. And you see a lot of them in the United States, in, the Silicon, in Silicon Valley, you see all these CEOs and you also see um, commentators on television uh, especially during the COVID period. I don't know if you noticed a lot of the doctors who were commenting uh, on U.S. television had uh, were of Indian origin. So you have this, this, this narrow elite of educated people with a, vast, with a vast number behind that, which is not visible to the Western eye typically, and which, frankly, the Indian elite also ignores. So the legacies are many fold. Yeah, that, so you have this concept of two Indias in the book, um, and you know, just listening to you talk right there, that really kind of crystallized in my mind is that you know you've got this 
this layer, I don't know if it's 10%, 15% of the population that's well-educated, as you said, lives first world lives. And it seems like, you know, I said at the beginning, this kind of hype about India is really a hype about that first India, that 10 to 15%. And when you think about the size of India, right, it's a 1.4 billion people. If it's <laughs> 10%, that's 140 million. So it's a, it's kind of like a an economy in its own right. It's the economy that we see in the West. But what you are saying is that the second India, the, I don't know if it's 80, 85%, that's an India where education, healthcare, women participation has really fallen well below the standards set by other East Asian countries. Um, and the, the issue I think you, you're saying is that, hey, when we look at India's economic success, people tend to look at GDP and they look at GDP per capita. And that 10 to 15% is generating high GDP growth. Um, but what really matters is, is jobs. Um, and as time has progressed, there's an increasing what you call jobs deficit for the second India. And that, I, I believe you say, is now on the order of 100 million or perhaps more uh, jobs that don't exist. So you have a lot of Indians who, some are unemployed, but most are underemployed. And what, um, I guess, social issues does that underemployment create for for not just for the second India, but for the <laughs> the whole of the country. So, so let me address the second part of your question first. The first world Indians have largely insulated themselves from the second India. In the following sense, they send their kids to elite schools. Increasingly, they send their kids to colleges abroad because the, the elite colleges have very few uh, openings, very few seats, as they call them in India. So a lot of Indian kids who can afford it uh, go abroad to study. They have their own water systems. They have, they have extremely high-quality healthcare systems, uh, a judiciary that does not function for the Bajiran most people where the pending cases keep going up because the courts are clogged. If you if you are well connected, you can navigate the judicial system. I was recently in India and I uh, someone was driving me and I noticed a console on the dashboard of the car. I'd never seen that before. And I said, what is that? And he says, we have an air purifier in the, in the car. And the, the, the console was giving you the air quality index inside the car. So the air is highly polluted. Indian cities compete with each other to be in the top 10 of the most polluted cities in the world. So the, the elite have insulated themselves. So for them, the main point of connection is cheap labor. To, to, to have housekeepers and maids in the house and chauffeurs. That's the connection. Now, I, I, I'm sure I'm not being completely fair because a lot, of, a lot of very rich Indians do philanthropic activities and very, very important philanthropic activities. It doesn't add up to a, a broad process of, of uh, upliftment and growth. So 
that's that's the that's the that's the the first world India. The rest of the India, this is the question I've I struggled with a lot. Why why if my analysis is correct, do we not see a much greater sense of anger, which then spills out into the streets and in protests? And there are three answers to that. The number one answer, and this is a, the most unfortunate of the three answers, that every time, and again, this is very path-dependent, 1967, there was a peasant rebellion in, in Naxalbari in West Bengal. And Mrs. Gandhi put it down with a very strong use of the coercive power of the state. Police and then army. And then, very soon after she began that process, she created something called an Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, which allows the police to detain you by giving you some sort of general cause with no obligation to bring you on trial in a timely way. And so you languish in jail for long, a long periods of time without even a clear charge being framed against you. So the, the one practice that began with Mrs. Gandhi, every subsequent government has felt it a useful tool in their, in their, in their governance toolkit, so to speak. And this latest government uh, since uh, 2014 has used it uh, on steroids. So one is that if there are protests, they are put down with a very heavy hand. The second is there is a lot of there's a there's a lot of attraction for low-grade criminal activity. Some of it goes into organized crime. And the third, most recently, since about the mid-80s, is that young frustrated youth have become foot soldiers of what we, uh, in India they call Hindutva or Hindu nationalism. So those energies which might have otherwise gone into social protest have either been put down or been channeled into these other force, uh, uh, in, into these other uh, areas which do not add up to a productive use of their, of their time and labor. You, you referred to this, um, and I'll get the pronunciation right, Hindutva philosophy, um, which is one that's been, I guess, adopted or maybe not even adopted, but it's been very much part of the current Prime Minister Modi's life right from, from a very young age. Could you expand a little bit on, on what that means, um, the Hindutva um, ideology, philosophy? I'm not quite sure how to, to phrase it. So the father of the Hindutva philosophy is a guy named Veer Savarkar. And it goes back to the early 20th century. He, he wrote a little booklet in, uh, in a cellular jail in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, where he was in prison for anarchist activities uh, put by the British. And he, he wrote this piece it was a very brutal uh, cell, uh, cell. He eventually pleaded for mercy and he came out. And that book instantly became the um, blueprint 
for for uh, a Hindu nationalism. Basically, it said that if you had your if your blood was part of a lineage that that came historically from that land, and if you were devoted to that land, you were a Hindu. So. It, Savarkar was quite clear that he was not talking of Hindu in the term in terms of religion. He had some notion of geography and obedience and 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 uh, for for the land. And it was a commitment to the the areas and to a certain cultural uh, process. The RSS, which is the Rashtriya Swam Sevak Sangh, soon after Savarkar articulated this, then picks this up and creates a organized system of grassroots movement, semi-militaristic at times in terms of their drills and so on. And that that whole setup, Savarkar and RSS uh, then has its own heads who become very important figures in the Hindutva. They lie fallow for a long time, till about the mid-80s, when Mrs. Gandhi is tenure is coming to an end, the social tensions are on the increase, and they create a demand for breaking a mosque on which a Mughal emperor is supposed to have built uh, a mosque that a Mughal emperor is supposed to have built on a site where there is some notion that the Lord Ram, who is a very beloved deity in the Hindu in the in the Hindu system, was born, and that becomes a focal point for a political movement, and from there on there was no let up. It just kept growing, and it then just. Uh, in 2014, Prime Minister Modi became head of a party that represents that set of beliefs. It, the way you describe it in the book is that Modi's political career has really taken off when he kind of fused the, I guess, underlying energy um, of the Hindutva movement with kind of business-friendly policies. And he developed, when he was governor of the state of Gujarat, if I've pronounced that correctly or close to it. Yes, um, that's Gujarat is very good. He developed this this Gujarat model of development. And then he, um, you know, brought that uh, philosophy to the national uh, government uh, when he took over in 2014. So could you explain what that that kind of model of development is? and why it was so, you know, I guess, seems so seductive to um, not only India but but uh, the rest of the the rest of the world looking into India. The Gujarat model of development is a phrase that emerges sometime in the early two thousands, if I remember right, and it was it was essentially a system of generous subsidization of large business relatively cheap land, sometimes uh, low interest loans, no questions asked, environmental clearances. So it, it was very generous for big business. And so not surprisingly, big business doubted its its virtues. But again, 
at the, by this point, there are two things to notice. One is a theme that we have spoken about before, which is that it, this particular model was not particularly job creating because it tended to go into heavy industry. So, for example, Gujarat during the period that Narendra Modi was chief minister had high GDP growth rates. But if you put up a petrochemical plant or, or uh, even an auto plant, in fact, I'm not sure there were many auto plants, but there was a lot of petrochemical development there. You create very few jobs. You, you get a lot of GDP, but you create very few jobs. So it was not job creating. And by now, we have another important uh, force in the Indian political, economic, and social system, which is environmental degradation. So this is another reason I am very skeptical of GDP as a metric, because if you're chewing up the inheritance of your kids, you can show GDP today, but what are you leaving for them tomorrow? The, the environmental degradation again begins early, accelerates during Mrs. Gandhi's period, and by by the uh, uh, new millennium, environmental degradation is again uh, going at very rapid speed. So the Gujarat model embodies, in a sense, it takes the old capital-intensive, limited job-producing model and ties it into this further uh, depredation of the environment. That's the Gujarat model. It's attractive because corporate profits are large. And so you have Ratan Tata, for example, one of the most important Indian uh, tycoons coming on Farid Zakaria's show, uh, the G GPS Global Public Square, in which he says, yeah, that's great stuff. I wish I'd done more. Yeah, sure, it's, it's great for him. There's no problem with that. So it's kind of a modern version of the temple's development strategy in your in your mind, which is you know, kind of reinforces this to India path that, you know, the Gujarat development model creates some jobs that tend to be highly skilled, relatively well-paid, um, attractive to foreigners, but leaves this continuing job deficit for the second India. Absolutely. I mean, for example, in 2013, 2014, uh, while the campaign was going on for the 2014 election, uh, that BJP, in his manifesto, the prime minister himself talked about jobs. And the, the elite commentators writing for elite Indian newspapers and international business and the international business press was claiming somehow that the Gujarat model would solve India's problems. But the Gujarat model was singularly unsuited to solve India's problems for the very three reasons, Kevin, that you began with. It did very little for agriculture. It did very little for urban jobs. And sure, it did not create a more competitive uh, Indian manufacturing sector in the global economy. The share of global exports of manufactured goods has stagnated at, I think, about 1.8% or thereabouts since about 2012. This is a period during which Vietnam has come from below and caught up with India. I was thinking, multiple questions, but I was going back to this issue of, uh, you know, um, what happens, what's the fallout from this, you know, kind of ever-increasing jobs deficit? And I, 
One of the things that surprised me in reading your book was the question marks you raised about economic statistics and their integrity. Because I'd always kind of thought of India as being like having this very sort of professional civil service producing good quality data. And you're saying actually it's that, you know, very hard to get um, hold of kind of reliable employment statistics. Some surveys on poverty were you know, dismissed because they showed results that were unfavorable. So you've got this kind of growing question mark, uh, in your opinion, over data. And at the same time, you've got an erosion of press freedoms that um, the government, you know, if there's if there's critical articles in the press, then, you know, the journalists are investigated for, you know, tax issues, corruption, etc. So I'm wondering if these, you know, the 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 erosion of data quality, the erosion of press freedoms are kind of like a necessary fallout uh, from a government that's, you know, not producing enough jobs to, you know, for its constituents. So it's sort of saying, hey, we, we need to we need to kind of, you know, cover that up to some extent. We need to um, suppress any criticism of that. And again, I'm not I'm not endorsing this. I'm just kind of repeating back to you what's in the book. But um, is that kind of how you view it? Is that those those things kind of almost expected given the situation? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I do. Uh, so you know, just to give you uh, four data points, uh, the GDP statistics are under a cloud. But put that to the side; that's the least of the problems. The employment statistics are in under a cloud. And when you say under a cloud, can you be more specific? What What do you mean by that? So, for example. There's been something called the National Sample Survey, which has every four or five years done a sample survey uh, from which uh, careful labor economists have then tracked the trends. And those, those trends show a very bleak picture. So just as I was completing my book, I, I asked myself, what does the Ministry of Finance say? Ministry of Finance used to publish a certain set of numbers and they discontinued them. And they started publishing a new series that showed enormous job growth. And so I asked uh, a, a very well-known labor economist, what's going on? You know, on the one hand, we're seeing all this frantic search for jobs where millions of people apply for hundreds of jobs. And the government says that they're, they're creating, that the economy is creating millions of jobs. And he said, just ignore it. That, that that's complete uh, nonsense. And indeed, it turned out to be complete nonsense. Uh, those numbers have some erratic nature to them. No one quite understands what they are doing. And when you even them out over a period of time, uh, it in fact turns out that even those numbers properly presented do not show any job growth. But they throw a lot of dust in the eye. Same thing with the poverty numbers. So India was one of the pioneers in doing sample surveys to estimate the extent of poverty. The last survey done on poverty uh, was in 2011-12. In 2018-17-18, I believe, there was another survey which showed that poverty had gone up. And so the government promptly said, this is garbage, and, 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 and discarded that survey. There's been no further survey since then. The census, which was supposed to occur in 2021, 
has been postponed. First because of COVID, and now there is no date on which the census is going to occur. So what every important statistic of a macro nature, there is a there is an informational fog. An informational fog in which you can create numbers and say, well, this is real till 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 the real numbers come out, this is what we presume it is. And so therefore you can tell any story you want to tell. And that is why uh, a lot of the sort of uh, you know, cheerleaders uh, for the Indian economy will tell you a story and you have no basis. You have to go back to the fundamentals and say, yeah, but come on, does this pass the smell test? And it often doesn't. I mean, just, just I'll give you one last uh, example. There's been a global mantra that India is the fastest growing economy in the world. And that is part of the cheerleading process that's going on. Now, here's what's happening. If you take between 2019 and 2012, the Indian economy fell sharply during COVID, bounced back, fell again, a second wave of COVID, bounced back. So it's yo-yoed. If you take the average, it's about 3.5% per year over this, over this uh, three-year period about the same as it was before COVID, before in the pre-COVID year. So the Indian economy, by any reasonable met metric, has been growing at about 3.5% since about mid-2019. Now, what, what has happened is that a number of people have taken the periods of the bounce back, which the bounce back will be large because you've fallen so sharply. And they've, they've extrapolated from the bounce back to say India is the fastest growing economy in the world. That is wishful thinking garbed in, uh, clothed in bad economics at best. And so the, because the data fog can be easily manipulated, there is an incentive to maintain the data fog. That's kind of surprising and dis and disappointing if you're if you're a westerner like me you know and you know you talk about this in the book that the western press kind of has repeatedly got india wrong but going all the way back to the time of mrs gandhi and you know just it's easy to um you know find stories just um you know recently in the ft and bloomberg that are quite positive about india where where does someone who you know, like me or like our listeners who's interested in India, go for what you consider to be kind of an accurate picture or at least a, you know, a picture that presents the other side to the, to the Indian growth story. Where, where do you go for, for, for data and analysis? Where do I go? Really good question. Uh, the um, Princeton alumni recently asked me to tell their readers which are the three books on India which I like. And all three books are written by journalists who are on-the-ground reporters. So one book is uh, by a Mumbai-based journalist called Landscapes of Loss. She talks about the distress in agriculture, about the interaction of a, of a system which through years of environmental degradation has lost water, 
and is now facing the onset of a climate crisis or periodic heat waves, uh, and therefore acute distress during several parts of the year. Uh, another book is um, on the floods in Chennai in 2015. I'm forgetting the title, but the author is Krupa Gay. She is uh, she has written a beautiful book about the about the um, floods. Now, what is important about the floods, and this is again an extremely important theme, that the floods were due to uh, excessive or improper release of water from a dam. But the real problem was that this construction industry has built over the water bodies in cities. And this is true in every city in India. What that means is that even if there is a mild downpour, the water just comes flooding into the city because the, the absorptive capacity of the traditional sinks of water has been has been shut off. This this is part of the process of a rampant and completely chaotic urban development. And she has described how this construction devastated the city of Chennai. But recently we had these floods in Bangalore. Same thing. Same thing happens in Delhi. Same thing happens in Mumbai. And a third book, which is much more visceral, is about the sort of acute corruption in state governments. Is called Despite the State by a fellow named Raj Shekhar, who also has written brilliantly about something called sand mining. The sand mining, illegal sand mining, is probably the source of the largest organized crime uh, in India today. Uh, sand is an extremely important ingredient in, in concrete, which is an important ingredient in construction, highly valued product, very organized mafia many of whom become rich and filter into uh, politics at, at local level and at, at senior level. You know, I don't know if you noticed, one of the themes of my book is the increased encroachment uh, of politics by criminals. Today, 25% of the legislators uh, in the Indian National Parliament have been are, are people accused of serious crimes like rape, murder, extortion, kidnapping, and so on. One quarter of the legislators are, 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 are of that category. In some state governments, like in Bihar, it's 50% of the legislators. So the nexus between crime and politics has grown. And the reason I, I'm pessimistic is that this is a bad equilibrium. In other words, this is in no one's interest to change this. The efforts to reduce corruption, to reduce the criminality in politics have been going on for the last 30, 40 years. But no one is willing to do it. Why would I do it if I, if I think that you will not do it? And so the bad equilibrium continues. Yeah, it's almost like the, the power in some sense is in those you know 100 or 200 million of underemployed people um, they're the ones, I suppose, who, had they were mobilized in the right way, could could create the pressure to change that. But they, you know, according to your book, anyway, are are, are mobilized and their energies are devoted to, you know, uh, to this kind of nationalist um, philosophy. And instead. Mm -hmm.
I want to ask you about press freedom. So, it, you know, I, there were some shocking statistics in the book about press freedom and, and that, you know, that's been eroded a lot. Um, and again, that that's not, I guess, as a kind of a naive Westerner looking in, you sort of think of India as a land of many, many voices and people very, you know, opinionated and willing to speak out. But uh, it sounds like over time that, that that's less and less the case. Uh, people who are, you know, the author of those three books that you just talked about, what happens to them? Are they perfectly free to publish what they want? Are there consequences for them? Are there going to be consequences for someone like yourself? Right. So authors of the books so far have been generally ignored because they are they're, 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 they cater to a very small audience. On the newspapers, there has been a bifurcation. The general conventional mainstream media has taken the route of telling the, the narrative that the authorities and the international elite want to hear. With some, with some, with some exceptions every now and then, but by and large, not, not, do not deviate too much from that, uh, from that general pattern. There is something called the DigiPub, it is digital publications, which are more open, more forthright, but clearly independent press is subject continuously to the possibility of being questioned. And all you need to do is question them uh, for tax evasion or not following certain rules and laws. And most recently, just in the last few days, one of the most prominent think tanks has been deprived of a license to access foreign funding sources, which will, in effect, at least highly compromise, if if not cripple that institution over the next several months. So voices of dissent are not welcome and people are adapting to that by by changing their behavior so that you don't get on the wrong side of the authorities because the consequences are not trivial so you know we we take that perspective and we look at kind of what i was talking about right at the beginning which is this global I guess, increasingly global confrontation between China and the U.S. and this kind of deglobalization. And the, I think the, the hope amongst a lot of Westerners that, you know, India might, if not side with the West, at least present kind of a, a, a buffer zone against an increasingly kind of autocratic governments. It sounds like you're, you're, you would disagree with that, that you think actually maybe India's um, incentives or their direction is, um, if not to be more aligned with China, certainly not to kind of automatically side with the West either. Look, uh, Kevin, on, on this matter, my expertise uh, runs out. What I can say is that if the premise of that statement is that India is a strong economy and democracy, 
then that premise is not not at, at this moment in time a valid one. It's neither a strong economy nor a strong democracy. In fact, I say so in the book, and the, um, you know, uh, you may know of this uh, institution in Sweden called VDEM, Varieties of Democracy. They've just come out with their late 2023 report, but already the report that I cited in my book, they categorize India as an electoral autocracy. And I think that sounds very reasonable uh, in terms of the nature of the state's use of coercive power, in terms of the freedom of press, in terms of a broad uh, lack of uh, tolerance of dissent. And so if the Western world is expecting, uh, is, is basing its thinking on a strong economy and strong democracy, I think that that is a mistake. You, you spent a, a little bit of time at the end of the book on things that might that might change, that might improve. You know, the, those two things, and and generally improve the lives of the people in the second India. Could you elaborate a little bit on what what you think might help? You talk a lot about kind of pushing power down to kind of a local level and creating, you know, I guess alternative models of kind of you know, decision-making and governance. So, uh, you know, I use the phrase bad equilibrium just now. And as a scholar yourself, you know, you appreciate that. The key point is that if, if a number of people cheat, then it's in everyone's incentive to cheat. If the political system is corrupt, then the rest of the system is, is, is impossible for it to be not corrupt. If there are criminals in politics being uh, incorporated by major parties, then everybody will do it. And that, that basically destroys the social norms and public accountability. And you, you fall into a catch-22 because unaccountable politicians will not impose accountability on themselves. Therefore, I have, I have steered away from giving specific policy measures because specific policy measures can always be distorted if the system is unaccountable. What I'm, what I'm saying at the end is that we have to find a way where the governed and the gover and those who govern them enter into a relationship of trust. And my understanding of both the history of successful democracies, including in the United States, as Alexei Tocqueville so eloquently wrote, and then Robert Putnam wrote, is that local democracy is where some of that trust and cooperation is the foundation for which is laid over there. And my 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 plea, my hope, my cry is that we begin there so that that process of rebuilding norms, rebuilding trust occurs and Hopefully, then it begins to filter up and filter across the country. And that is then the, will be the basis for a renewed commitment to health, to education, to a judiciary that is fair, to an environmental policy that, that is, is considerate of next, the next, next generation, to cities that function, because without those, 
the the prospects, uh, economic and political prospects for India remain very bleak. Yeah, I, it's at, at several points during the book you were describing, um, you know, the, the 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 current system and the um, you know, the I guess your view of the corruption at the government level, the link with organized crime, and I thought to myself. That could be describing New York City in the 1920s, or it could be describing Chicago in the late 1800s. And um, obviously, America's path and India's path very different, but there is precedent for a corrupt political system to reform itself over time if the incentives are, are there. Correct. And, and so, you know, in fact, just yesterday we discussed this very uh, theme in class. The U.S. had a number of advantages there was competition between cities that prevented corruption from getting out of hand. There were bond markets disciplining, disciplining the fiscal behavior of cities. And there was just a much greater technological momentum going on in, in, uh, in uh, the U.S. India does not have that momentum despite the hype. And India is in a, diff, is a, is a, in a deeper bad equilibrium and so the task is a hard one. But yes, that is that is exactly where I mean if you if you if you read Robert Putnam's um uh, books, he sees it again, that renewal that you describe in the United States, again beginning with a renewable a renewal emphasis on local communities. And it I think that the history is is generally persuasive that it's a local community democracy that helps build trust and and cooperation and you then build from uh, up there well um i I hope that is a path that eventually takes hold in india and um i I want to thank you for for joining the show and for for writing the book and um, you know for giving us a you know an alternate view on on a country that uh, is clearly um, very important to to all of us. So thanks for thanks for your work. Thanks for joining the show and um, best of luck. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you very much for your very thoughtful uh, reading of the book and the questions you have asked. So with that, I'm going to pass it back over to Niels. Thank you so much, Ashok and Kevin, for a fascinating but also slightly worrying view on India, which clearly is not how the mainstream media is referring to the country. Firstly, I will say that I was very impressed with Ashok's background and some of the European crises that he had been involved in and in charge of solving following the great financial crisis. But if we start at the end of the conversation, his last statement that India is not a strong economy nor a strong democracy really should lead to more people asking themselves if we're looking at the world's most populated country through the wrong lens. I think the challenges that India faced after its independence and how they're still not resolved even 75 years after or so is very thought-provoking. And of course, the role of education and the obstacles they seem to be facing with a large percentage of students who drop out of a school before they even get to high school, leading them to fall behind even further uh, compared to the Asian countries. And also what the underemployment that he sees can lead to in terms of societal cha challenges are quite worrisome. So this will be worth paying attention to 
without a doubt. That's it for today. Make sure you go and follow Ashok's and Kevin's work as well as getting a copy of their books because as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.